This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am Stephanie Butnick, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, tablet editor-at-large, Liel Leibovitz. Hello to you and a very merry Elul, which I believe is the correct greeting for this month. And our atoner-in-chief, Joshua Molina. Hey now. We are here. We are at the conclusion of our four-part Elul series. We've done it. We've done it. We've made it. We're at like the almost at the finish line of the marathon, about to start the high holidays. And we have something really, really special for you today. It's going to be the launch of a new series. It's called Beautifully Jewish. And it's all about the objects that are sacred and beautiful in our Jewish lives. But before we get to that, I want to sort of wrap things up. I want to put a bow on Elul, if I may. Liel, you're our like, in-house rabbi. Um, a luler in chief. Yes, exactly. You've, um, you're our Eluluzuela. <laughs> You've gotten smicha from some online thing. You can, you are. Got my smicha from Twitter. I'm, I'm ready to go. Yeah, you're, you're as rabbinic as it gets for us. This was your idea. The idea of stepping back, taking four episodes to just prepare for the high holidays, not just to go into them cold and say like, oh no, this is when I do it. I do it in, in synagogue and shul and temple. You want to start this thing early. I am obsessed with this month of Elul. I have to tell you, I am, um, you know, kind of a little bit iffy on the high holidays. I think Rosh Hashanah personally is an absolutely freaking terrifying day. Like if I was writing the script and like my new year coincided with like, hey, happy new year, everyone. By the way, we're going to open the book and it's going to say which one of you is going to die this year. Like it's a terrifying freaking, like who would ever do this? It's like such a scary idea. And I love Yom Kippur, but I mainly love it because I get to show off by being the annoying guy who, when everybody wants to eat, I'm the guy who's like, no, no, Rabbi, can we please do, you know, Birkata Levana, can we please bless the moon? Can we have 10 more minutes of fasting? But there's something about Elul. There's something about this month of preparation that, you know, I keep saying this and, and we discussed this a little bit in our first installment of, of this four episode series, but there's something so freaking mind bending about this. Here's a religion that really tells you everything. It tells you how to do every single fucking thing imaginable. And when it gets to the prescribed month of soul searching, it tells you nothing. Like it doesn't give you a single instruction on how to emotionally, spiritually prepare for the moment of judgment before God. Like that just seems a little cruel to me. And I've spent like many years struggling with how to do it. And then I heard this amazing story attributed to Rav Simcha Bunim, which is like late 18th, early 19th century Hasidic master, who had this method, which I have to say I've adopted. Sometimes I do it literally. This year I did it a little bit more figuratively, but still with the intention. He said, when Elul comes along, you should write two notes and put each one in your pocket. In your right-hand pocket, you should write, I am nothing but dirt. And in your left-hand pocket, you should write a note that says, the world was created for my sake alone. And you should sort of like walk around for a month, balancing out these two sentiments of being completely nobody and the sole purpose for God's creation, which I think is really an amazing way of thinking about what it is that you should do here, which is at one and the same time, a deep call and invitation to humility, but also a reminder that you have this really special purpose that you ought to spend the year trying to find because you're here for a reason. You are God's partner in this creation. There is something 
that you ought to do here, and you are much more special and more meaningful than you may think. This this dichotomy, this tremendous tension between nothing and everything, it's like so freaking meaningful. And I struggle with it every ill, which is why I feel like to me it's going through an entire month feeling like I've had nine martinis. Like I, I feel literally kind of drunk the entire month because because what is it that I'm supposed to do? How is it that I'm supposed to connect? And I love coming to the finish line, so to speak, feeling beaten, feeling out of it, feeling, you know, kind of woozy because what other state is there to arrive at a moment of, of spiritual reckoning? Josh, are you with me on this one? How do you do? How, how do you, Elul? Well, I've been doing something this month that I've not done in past Elul's, which is we're meant to blow the shofar in the morning during Elul. We are. Have you done it? At my, I haven't done it every day. I want to say that I did, but I have not. But at my dad's suggestion, I've been doing it. Just Whoa. a tekiah, shvarim truah, tekiah. I had a rabbi way back when who, I'm sure this has been used before, but compared the blasts of the shofar to a spiritual alarm clock. I've been trying to use it as such. So at least daily, I'm thinking about what's coming up and and looking inward. And I've also read somewhere that the extra bonus of blowing the shofar during Elul is that we are ahead of time, hopefully distracting and confusing the prosecuting angel <laughs> that will decide. <laughs> and that just the noise and the sound is enough, hopefully, to throw it off. Wait, I cannot believe you know shofar. Yes, I have. I have been. Um, You've dabbled? I, I have dabbled in synagogue itself. I guess maybe my dad taught me, but I've been uh, Baltikia at my uh, synagogue a few times. Wait, that's a big honor. That is amazing. You're a triple threat. You can act, you can podcast, you can show far. I'm barely a single threat, but thank you. <laughs> I got to tell you, man, during COVID, like I thought this is going to be an issue for us. Like I bought a show far and I did my best to <laughs> sort of do some passable noise. Like mine sounded like, well, I did play a little clarinet when I was a kid. So I think I had the amateur. I was an unremarkable clarinetist. I think I'm probably also an unremarkable Baltkia, but but I can get the sound. I can get the sound out. Do you, do you prepare? Do you have like a, like a moment of like before the thing, do you stop and sort of like take it all in and then like summon the, the intentionality? How, how do you do that? Yes, yes. I try to. And I was mentored by a guy at my synagogue, put the tallis over the head. Like I do. Yeah, I feel it's a whole moment. You do it's the whole thing. thing. It works. The whole thing works. That's amazing. I'm even more in awe of you than, than you. <laughs> I mean, being at Broadway is one thing, but like fucking blowing the shofar, that's a that's a whole new talent. <laughs> but Stephanie Butnick, while you have not seized the ram's horn, you have beheld a lot of other very meaningful, beautiful Jewish objects in what we're going to hear today, your brand new series, an exploration of beautiful Jewish things. I couldn't convince you to call it Joni Loves Tchotchkes. <laughs> Joni Loves Tchotchkes. <laughs> Which would have been another way to go. I mean, Beautifully Jewish is also lovely. Tell us about the new series. I'm so excited to bring to everyone the first installment of Beautifully Jewish, a series that I'm putting together with the help of our colleague Tanya Singer, all about the beautiful things that are at the root of Jewish observance and Jewish identity and Jewish culture.
we are excited to announce Tablet's first ever essay competition, First Personal. Our editors are looking for previously unpublished work by writers living in North America who have never written for Tablet before. They are seeking submissions on the theme of belonging. Where do you feel at home or no longer at home, physically, spiritually, or culturally? How do you find community or a sense that you're a part of something larger than yourself? Are there places where you feel a sense of belonging or alienation or both? Tablet is seeking personal essays about your life and your experiences and how your thoughts and feelings have evolved over time. Tablet editors will review all submissions and choose their favorite five, which they will edit with the writers. The authors of those five pieces will be brought to New York City to read their story in front of a live audience. A guest judge will then select the winner. The winning essay will be published in Tablet and the winner will receive $500. For more information and to submit your essay, please visit tabletmag.com slash essay contest. Without further ado, here is Beautifully Jewish. We like to say that Jews are the people of the book, but actually, I think we're the people of the stuff. Hear me out. When we move into a new home, the first thing we do is put a mezuzah up on the doorpost. When we get married, we stand under a chuppah and sign a ketubah which then gets hung up in our home. We mark the arrival of Shabbat on Friday evenings with candlesticks and challah covers and end it the next night with a braided Havdalah candle and spices. The centerpiece of Hanukkah is an eight-branch menorah, which we light every night. The Passover Seder table is a smorgasbord of symbolism, all nestled onto a beautiful Seder plate. Many of our most meaningful Jewish rituals and customs are grounded in and completed with stuff and we put great care into selecting these things, working with an artist to customize a wedding ketubah, not just the words on it, but the way it looks. Our Shabbat candlesticks might be passed down through generations or purchased from one of the many modern Judaica brands you see on your Instagram feed. Tallest bags are painstakingly needle-pointed, often personalized for the recipient. The things we have and use are inextricably tied to our experience of being Jewish. But for some of us, It's complicated. I grew up in the suburbs of New York City, in the town of Great Neck, the epicenter of Jewish materialism. We were introduced into Jewish adulthood with a series of lavish parties. We put on Tiffany bracelets, clutch Kate Spade bags, and rush to bat mitzvah after bat mitzvah, where we get commemorative sweatpants with Jennifer or Julie or Jillian's name emblazoned on them. My bat mitzvah giveaway was a pair of sweatpants that said Stephanie B on the back. I loved it all. But I also felt a pressure not to care too much about things, haunted by the Jewish-American princess stereotype and not wanting to embody it or worse, perpetuate it in the outside world, especially once I left for college. While I loved having the stuff, it was really important to me that I also have substance. When I went to college, I took a class on classical Judaism, where we went all the way back to the days of the temple and learned about the Dead Sea Scrolls, a different kind of Jewish stuff. I became obsessed with learning more about this culture I grew up with and the ideas that animate it. After that class, I became a religion major and went on to grad school in religious studies. And the more I learned, the more I realized how strongly thing-centric Judaism is, how deeply and truly and completely it requires us to think about the objects that make up our religious practice. It turns out I'm not the only Jew who really cares about things and how they make us feel and how they help us make meaning. In fact, 
things play such a central role in Judaism that we even have a principle known as hidor mitzvah, or beautifying the mitzvah, which means finding the most beautiful ritual object you can. Judaism acknowledges the importance and power of appealing to our senses. The smell of freshly baked challah, the flickering light of the menorah, the feeling of a talus covering you, its fringes dangling from the corners. It's why we delight in finding the most perfect challah cover, and why some people spend hundreds of dollars on an etrog for Sukkot. Because we believe that if Shabbat or Sukkot or all of our observances are special, if they truly mean something, then we should celebrate them in style, taking special care and using special things. The best part of this is that it's entirely subjective. Each of us gets to decide what beautiful is to us. Learning this about Judaism really helped me. It helped me understand that liking things doesn't make me materialistic or shallow or somehow less smart and spiritual or less of a serious Jew. Liking things just means that I'm interested in the objects that connect us to our tradition and to our families and to our past, the things that ground us as Jews. So let's stop pushing away from caring about things. Let's come right out and say that it's okay to want beautiful objects, that it's okay to find great value in things because Judaism sanctifies beautiful things and sees them as central to our lives. It's how we very literally connect to our Jewish identity. That peacock menorah I found at a Jonathan Adler warehouse sale, that bagel menorah I bought on Modern Tribe, that bright blue menorah I got from Via Maris, those are the treasures that light up my family's Hanukkah, pun intended. That, along with the objects passed down to me, are the cornerstones of the memories that I hope my daughter Edith will cherish for the rest of her life. Memories of a holiday that was joyous and warm and yes, very beautiful. Because beautiful matters. That magic is exactly what we're looking at in this series called Beautifully Jewish. Each episode will celebrate Jewish material culture, the ritual objects that inspire us, and the people who make them. We'll talk to experts and historians about the objects we use for holidays and life cycle events, visit with artisans and makers to see how they get made, and get hands-on with ideas for how to bring these objects into our own lives. Beautiful objects are just as likely to be hand-knit or crafted by people pouring their hearts and their love into each stitch. I'll be joined by my colleague Tanya Singer, a knitting maven and writer whose work explores the intersection of craft and Jewish identity. You'll hear from Tanya later on in this episode and throughout the series. But for now, take a deep breath, surround yourself with a few of your favorite things, and let's dive right in to something beautifully Jewish. We're gonna start at the beginning, and I really mean the beginning. A quick history lesson. The first thing the Israelites did upon becoming a people after getting the Torah at Mount Sinai was make something and make it beautiful. We rarely pay attention to this when we read the Torah because you know, the bits with the plagues and the parting of the sea are just so dramatic. But honestly, the story of the Jews becoming a people is the story of history's most insanely ambitious DIY project. Here's what happened. The Jews flee Egypt, gather at Sinai and receive the Torah. But instead of saying, go ahead and hurry home to the promised land, God makes a very different demand. The Jews need to build the Mishkan or the tabernacle, the earthly sanctuary where the divine spirit would dwell. And building God's home here on earth meant making it very, very pretty. How pretty? Some have said that the outer wall was made from freaking unicorn hides. You can't make this up. The Mishkan also had gold and precious metals and splendid fabrics, which meant that these people who had almost nothing 
Remember the whole matzah thing? They fled Egypt so fast, there wasn't time for their bread to rise? These people sacrificed their absolute most prized possessions to beautify this mitzvah. It also meant that they had to do a lot of work. 39 different types of labor are mentioned in the extremely detailed story of building the Mishkan. There was weaving and sewing and every other crafty thing you can imagine. And not at all coincidentally, these 39 activities form the basis of what we're not supposed to do on Shabbat, our holy day of rest. So really, the entire Jewish project started with everyone getting together and, well, making stuff. To help us understand this deep connection between Jews and things, I turned to Gabe Goldstein of the Yeshiva University Museum and an expert on Jewish material culture. Hi, I'm Gabe Goldstein, and I am the interim director and chief curator at Yeshiva University Museum. So I think we all have a very strong visual sense and a connection to aesthetics. I think the beauty always shows us some sense of the sublime, some sense of something ethereal and spiritual, and something that we all connect to. Within Judaism, there's always been a tension between the centrality of the text and belief and a real fear of the idolatrous, alongside a recognition that beauty matters and that it means something and that physicality is central to our experience. And so that we have to incorporate that into all aspects of our life. And it has a really special place within something which is about the beyond, about the belief, about tradition. The Mishkan, the tabernacle is the first kind of big project and creates a framework for how within Jewish belief and within Jewish experience, a place and a physicality and the creation of objects in a setting become a meeting place between the personal, communal, and divine. And then it takes that physical space and objects and ritual to have that happen. So that's a very good starting point. Exile, exodus, those seem to be current themes throughout Jewish history. What you can pack in your suitcase when you're on the run literally is what forms the place of God within Jewish life at the very inception. It's not out of nothing, but it's out of a little bit that everybody has and what they were able to grab of value as they left. You know, I'm always surprised about the Mishkan is like how important it was that it be a beautiful, it, it could have served its purpose if it was very bare bones, but it wasn't. It's the idea that people brought in their very best things, that the community came together and was asked to and donated these glorious objects and materials, skins and dye stuffs and metals they have brought with them in the Exodus. And that building together with these skins, with these poles and those construction elements, those processes to spin, to weave, that activity and that donation to create this magnificent structure that's shared and then shared not only among the community, but shared between the community and God. That collectivity, I think, is really a powerful metaphor for what the physical aesthetic process creates. We're far from the days where we wandered the wilderness carrying the Mishkan, but we've carried our love for beautiful objects into our homes. I think that home beautiful aspect of Hidor Mitzvah, beautifying the Mitzvah, uh, the commandment is central and that you have also in terms of Exodus, exile, and looking back, the home space, the table space, and the Sabbath table space becomes equivalent to the altar within the Mishkan or the temple. And that that experience of the Sabbath table is this experience of worship and connection between man and God, and that beautiful objects create that bridge. So basically, beautiful Shabbat candlesticks are just as important as the ritual they illuminate. 
the visual is not just the handmaiden and the second class of the prayer or text or study experience. It combines with and works together with and is, is essential to. The objects can be beautiful and simple or homemade and equally elegant and equally of import. And I think it's very important that we also really embrace and celebrate works that are made more simply and more inexpensively. You know, every year we unpack our Pesach stuff and I have my kids' Haggadot that they made over the years and these funny, cute Afikoban bags they made when they were in nursery. I personally love to come up with new things to use at our Seder that weren't made to be used that way. And that, you know, beautiful textiles I bought in my travels that I used to wrap the matzah or pieces that, you know, weren't ritual, but we used them that way. I have a beautifully embroidered textile that my grandmother or my great-grandparents brought over when they moved from Europe to Canada and that we used to wrap the matzot, but it wasn't that that's how it was used in the old country, but it means a lot. That personal ownership, that personal involvement, that connection is very important, and that's part of the process, that you feel connection, that you want to make that beauty yourself, you want to feel that own personal connection. It does tell us something. I think we really recognize that things matter and things become imbued with sacredness and we have to treat them a certain way. And we understand that things allow for ritual, things are embodied in ritual, and things that connect to something more sacred take on that power. So for example, anything which is involved with the Torah scroll, that the Torah textiles become sacred. I wanted to learn more about those sacred Torah textiles and how they get made. So I paid a visit to Heather Stoltz, a fiber artist who makes Torah covers and other Jewish art at her home studio in Westchester County. Thank you for having us. Welcome. My name is Heather Stoltz. We are in my home studio. And this is where I do all of my artwork. I'm creating quilted wall hangings and Judaica Torah covers, Talitot. Usually the floor is covered with fabrics and papers and all kinds of things. That's my next project. I'm making a chuppah out of the groom's mother's wedding dress and some fabrics that are special to the bride's family. So I think that's the bride's father's plaid shirt and some other aprons and stuff. So they're all going to be put into the chuppah. This is actually a massive oversized talit that I just finished. Um, So I made this... With Central Synagogue. It's a community talit. I worked with the pre-K, some of the religious school, and some of the adults. And everybody made a square that's inspired by the priestly benediction, especially focusing on the last line about peace and where do you find peace. And so everybody made a square that really spoke to them about where they find peace. And then they all got stitched together in this massive talit that they're going to use to do group blessings. And then on the back, there's a a sleeve to put a curtain rod if they want to hang it up when it's not being used. I started creating artwork from a Jewish lens. I really like to do the research before creating a piece, especially those around Jewish texts, to really dig into not just the text itself, but all of the stories behind it, all of the midrashim, all of the commentary, and get a better sense of what's behind that text before starting the piece. It's a big part of how I interact with my Judaism and not just the text, but also my lived 
Judaism, I've made pieces about my relationship with worship or my relationship with Judaism along the way. And it's a way of combining the Jewish life and the making. I think creating with your hands, there's something that goes into making something yourself that really brings whatever it is you're creating to life. People can create worlds with words, but that's not my talent. I can't like spin words in a way that bring people into another place. But I create physical things with my hands that can then interpret the words that are there. And that's what I love to do, to take the text, especially the traditional texts, and really transform them into something that's visible. Heather does commissions for people around the country. But a few years ago, she was approached about a project much closer to home. Her synagogue was looking to create special white Torah covers for the high holidays. It's a quick drive from Heather's house to Temple Israel Center of White Plains, where she showed me the collection. Carefully stored in wardrobe boxes are seven Torah covers, each depicting one of the seven species celebrated during harvest festivals. Wheat, barley, grapes, figs, pomegranates, olives, and dates. They're intricate and beautifully made and will soon be brought out to the sanctuary to be used during services. So the main part is just fabric. And it's kind of like a quilt without batting when it's laid flat. And then it's wrapped around this top piece that's made of wood covered with another piece of fabric. And then in the holes, there are these little wooden rings just to cover up the edges and make it look prettier. At first, it's very much like making a quilt. Wow. So these are the Torah covers that are used in the main sanctuary only on the high holidays through Sukkot. There are seven, seven scrolls in our sanctuary. And so there's one for each. Here is the wheat, grapes, olives, barley. And sometimes it's hard to tell the wheat from the barley. I had to research that one to figure out if there was any difference in appearance. Pomegranate. Thanks. And dates. So this one is the dates. What I wanted to make sure was that all of the dates didn't have the exact same fabric. So I chose a variety of different fabrics in the same color family and different textures so that from a distance, it doesn't just look No, like it looks, flat. it does. So, okay. So what, what are the different textures? Is it okay that I'm touching these? Yeah, yeah. I feel like I'm like in a museum. <laughs> no, definitely. And I should be wearing the gloves. Not at all. Yeah. So just different fabrics. There's kind of a suede and something a little more velvety just to give it a few different textures. And they're sort of slightly different colors, right? Exactly. So we have like more, one's like a little more mustard. Exactly. One's a little brown. A little more gold. These are the prettiest dates I've ever seen, though. <laughs> Most dates I see are not this nice. Well, we needed to edit a little so that <laughs> they're a little prettier And so cover. what are you using for these fronds? These are different home deck fabrics, mostly cottons. And again, a couple of different fabrics just so there's a little more interest and variety. And then I tried to use the same fabrics on some of the different covers just so that they all go together. So for the leaves, it'll be mostly the same fabrics kind of repeated. I also didn't realize till we we're up close that there's sort of like a sparkle to this backing fabric. Yeah, we got really lucky finding this really beautiful background fabric. From a distance, what you see is the colors that pop mm -hmm. and the design. So you can tell the different species from each other, but you definitely wouldn't see all of the detail and the textures. It's always a little surreal when they come out at Rosh Hashanah 
It's nice. And it's nice to also have my family there with me. Mm-hmm. The first year that we did it, I had my kids and my husband come help put them on the Torahs. Wow. So that was a special moment. And they were able to really feel like they're part of it. Heather's family was especially part of one of the Torah covers, the one depicting barley. Look at this one. The barley, which does not look like the wheat, I have to say. Well, I figured out that barley has these little spikes that come up. And it's a slightly different. It's like beige instead of gold. Okay. So that's the difference that we went with. But when I was creating it, I needed one more fabric. And Mm. I just couldn't find another fabric that went with the ones that I had. And so I was talking to my mother. And she's like, well, don't you just have an extra pair of pants or something? So my son, who was almost four at the time, had outgrown this pair of khaki pants. Oh, wow. So I that is amazing. And so now every time the Torah covers come up, he gets a kick out of it because people are kissing his pants. <laughs> <laughs> wow, his pants are right there. Yeah. It's like a nice little corduroy. Exactly. That is so funny. So it reminds me that like we're supposed to be wearing white. People get a new outfit. Like there's this, there's a tradition around dressing in a special way for these holidays. So you've basically dressed the Torahs in this special way. Yeah, there's a tradition that the Torah covers be all white for the holidays. So when we first started this design process, we were trying to come up with ways to make them all white and shades of white. And then the committee decided, you know what? They don't actually have to be completely white. (laughs) Maybe it's just mostly white, and then we can have a pop of color, and that will make it a little more interesting. So how long does this take? Seven Torah covers, 100 million different materials and fabrics. Once the design was finalized and the fabrics were chosen, probably took close to four months or so. I think what's mostly special about these Torah covers is that they're for the community where we are members. And so we see them in use. And there's something extra special about having the pieces that you've made used in a sacred space that you're worshiping in. What other designs have you done for your other Torah covers? I've used a lot of blue wave patterns. Torah is sometimes talked about as water. And so Torah is life and water is life. And so Torah is water. So there's a lot of blue wave patterns that I've used. Traditional Torah covers are often made of a navy velvet with gold embroidery. And there's often some sort of crown or a picture of a Torah on it embroidered in gold thread with Hebrew text also in gold. You're taking me back to my childhood because I feel like a lot of us they, they're almost, you almost, your eyes glaze over because you're so used to seeing these sort of old is sort of the right word, very traditional. That's that, to me, that's what a Torah cover looks like. So to look at these, and first of all, they're beautiful. They're white. They're this amazing fabric. I mean, do you feel like you're changing people's perception of Torah and, and the, the way in which we can engage with, like, with beautiful things in a Jewish context? I hope so. I hope that by creating something kind of modern and fresh that people are able to relate to the contents in a new way also to kind of look at the old text with new eyes as well and see things that they may not have seen before. Heather's Torah covers up close and learning about the stories behind each stitch made me realize how much time and thought and care goes into making these sacred objects. Everything we make becomes special. I decided I should try to make something myself. And since I'm at the very beginning of this journey, I figured I'd start with baby steps. 
I sat down with Tanya Singer, my Craft World consigliere and co-creator of this series, to learn how to knit. But first, we talked about how we got here. You realize in the past few years that we've known and worked together, all of our conversations are basically about the same thing. It's one of us sending the other a cool new Judaica site on Instagram. Or you sending me a picture of a matzah cover that you knit. We send pictures back and forth all about Jewish objects. We love Jewish things. It's true. I know that I bombard you, but it's like you're the first person I think of when I see something beautiful on Instagram. I always want to send it to you. So sorry about that. I love it so much. Please don't stop. And, you know, I'm in this funny place. I feel like I talk about it all the time on the show, but I'm building my Jewish home. I'm thinking about how I want to raise a Jewish child and everything from Shabbat dinners to holidays. I'm really sort of assessing all of the pieces that that create a Jewish table, that create a Jewish home. I love that. And I remember remember being there well. And I'm launching two children. One's about to graduate from college and the other's a high school junior. And I've never stopped thinking about how to create a Jewish home and Jewish experiences, raise Jewish children, and to be part of a Jewish community individually and as a family. I remember the things my kids made. The Kiddush cup that Abby made in preschool is like covered with, I'm not sure what, like glitter and tissue paper. And it is one of my most prized possessions. But Tanya, you're selling yourself short. You're an amazing knitter and crafter, and you're also deep in the Jewish knitting world. I guess in the same way that unorthodox, you make it your business to know who the Jewish Nobel laureates are. Mm -hmm. I make it my business to know who the Jewish knitters are. (laughs) I can tell you the Jewish knit shop owners, the Jewish yarn dyers. I I can tell you who makes Jewish patterns. And for me, it it just makes the knitting world that much closer and warmer and special to me. I've knit Hanukkah sweaters. I've knit a Passover sweater, as you know. I've knit a matzah cover. I any any way that I can kind of combine these things. I have friends who crochet menorahs. If there's something to be done, like a knitter or crocheter has figured it out. There are Jews all over the world making beautiful things. The New Year is upon us. The the Torahs are going to have their beautiful white covers. We're all starting anew, and I figured that the thing that I should really be doing is learning something myself. So, Tanya, after many, many years, I am taking you up on your offer to teach me how to knit. Amen. (laughs) This is the moment to start, Stephanie. Rosh Hashanah is a time to remember and a time to think about where we come from, our family connections. I think about my ancestors at this time, my bubby Esther, who knit and crocheted. Someday I'll tell you about her and her mother, my namesake Tilly, knit for a living. And my Zadie, who actually lived with us for a time, um, was an immigrant. He was a tailor and a dry cleaner. They were part of a legacy of thousands of years of Jews who made things and made things for a living, made things to beautify their homes. So much of knitting is a very generous, very Jewish act. It's contemplative. It's slow. It's just like braiding challah, kneading dough. You're putting your hands in every stitch. You don't get more personal than making each stitch of something for someone else. So what is this piece of paper that I'm looking at with a poem on it? The knitting poem is in through the front door, once around the back, peek through the window, and off jumps Jack. Okay, so I don't want you to do anything. You've cast this already. I've I've cast on. So if you see, I want to show you here. You have two needles. So let me give you a quick anatomy. There are 10 stitches sitting on this needle. And see these little turtlenecks? Yes. Okay, these are important because there's like a little trick that happens to new knitters, and I will warn you about it later. We won't knit those. Okay, in through the front door. So in through the front door. Now I'm going to give you like some refinements. Okay. I'm holding both both needles in my left hand. You mm. see how it's making an X? Yeah. Okay. So now when I, when I once around the back, I'm actually going, the through. yarn is getting pulled in the middle uh, of the X. Okay. 
And I'm hanging on to the yarn. I don't just drop it. I'm hanging on to it like if it's I'm walking my dog. I'm not choking okay. it, but I'm just like gently holding. Yeah. And then I bring this one Peek through, through sort of peeking through the window, sort of towards my belly button. Oh, and then the off, off jump jack, jack is the left from the left guy. So okay. now you try it. Steph. Okay. So the right one is the one that moves. Yep. So you're going to bring the right so through. In through okay. the window. In through the front door. In, sorry, in through the front door. Mm-hmm. Then we go once around the back. Gorgeous. Through this X. Uh-huh. I'm a little more awkward at it than you are. Okay, oh. then I tight. Do I tighten it? Just hang on to Peek it. Peek through the window. That's this. Yep. And off jump jack. Amazing. Oh my god, I did it. Okay, I want to do another one. You're you're learning, and you should give yourself the space just to just to play with just to play. That's a good Elul message. You're just we're learning. And we should give ourselves the space. We're all learning to be better people. We're all learning to do more craft. <laughs> to do more. We're all learning to be in the world. Better? I don't know. I'm confused. I'm just, okay, wait. Oh, look at this. I did another one. Stephanie. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Okay. Amazing. And you're counting stitches. And I my be turtleneck is loose, but I don't care on the end. Oh, look, this is actually looking really good. Amazing. I'm am I, what am I admiring my stitch? Admiring your knitting. Admiring my knitting. I love it. Yay! Look at us. Imagine that purple. I know. If only this was purple, <laughs> then we'd be in business. Tanya, thank you for teaching me how to knit. It's such a pleasure to share this with you, Stephanie. Thank you. I started with a few stitches, and I'm excited to continue this beautifully Jewish journey. It's going to be a celebration of Jewish objects and what they mean to us and how they let us connect to and honor and have fun with our Jewish identities. There's so much more in store and we can't wait to share it with you each month on Beautifully Jewish. We want you to share your favorite Beautifully Jewish things. Post photos in our Unorthodox Facebook group, email them to me at unorthodox at tabamag.com or share them on social media using the hashtag Beautifully Jewish. Thank you for listening and here's to making things Beautifully Jewish. It's really interesting. I really didn't necessarily think about this before listening to the segment, but there is something about caring very deeply about material objects that isn't just Judaism adjacent, but is actually really at the core of the practice, right? Totally. As I fondle my beard, uh, I say, you know, it's very easy to sort of slide into this conception. Yes, well, Judaism is about prayer and study, life in the realm of ideas and thoughts. And here you are saying really, I think, accurately, well, no, it's also about literally about things that you have right <laughs> in your home, your challah cover, your menorah, your, your things that you need in order to have a complete Jewish life. That's a radical idea. The other thing I want to say as part of this Elul conversation is that for me, I feel incredibly connected with the high holidays because my birthday is in September. My birthday is always right around the high holidays, unless they are those crazy years where they're like in October or in August or like Thanksgiving or something like that. But the fall is, is really this regenerative part of the year where I feel like I start my Jewish year, but then I also start my life year. For me, it was really meaningful to start a new series now and to sort of say, let's explore this in this coming year. And so Another really fun thing we do in the series is that we're we're going to sort of DIY it. We're going to show you what the artisans do, and then we're going to show you what you can make in your own home. So we're talking about the concept of hidur mitzvah, right? 
the idea that there's a religious component to beauty and that the fulfillment of mitzvot, of commandments, can be enhanced by a little extra care and a little extra art going into the objects we use. It's so funny because I keep saying in the creation of this, you know, as we start to create this, I was saying, do other religions have this? Like the idea of sanctifying the commandment, making something more beautiful sanctifies it. And I'm like, do the Catholics have this? Like, I want to hear from people who are not Jewish to hear their version of this. And I also am really excited and something we're going to be teasing out throughout the series is to hear from people about what objects are important to them in their lives, whether they are bubbies, candlesticks, or something that they've, you know, bought when they got out of the mikvah for the first time. I really want to start sharing these stories and photos of people's beautifully Jewish lives and and items. So email us, send us emails at unorthodoxatabletmag.com. Share on social media, hashtag beautifully Jewish, tag us. I'm so excited to see what everyone has. And also what Jewish items have you made yourself? For me, it's, it's this Menachem Begin action figure. I mean, that's beautiful. <laughs> and that's definitely Jewish. <laughs> Just one Mazel Tov this week in honor of the new year. This comes in from listener Gabrielle Firestone in Borehamwood, UK. She wanted to shout out her daughter, Anna, who is starting a gap year in Israel, along with her friends Samuel and Natan. She wishes a mazel tov to them and all the students from America and Europe who are starting their gap years in Israel this week. Gabrielle writes, we are going to miss them so much, but are incredibly excited for them to have this precious year to further their learning, personal and spiritual growth, independence, and friendships. So on behalf of all of us, plus your mom, Anna, mazel tov. Oh, Hashem. Beautiful. You will not find a martini like they make at Dukes, but you'll find a very good arak at, uh, at every good Israeli joint by you. Unorthodox is a production of Tablet Studios. The show is hosted by me, Stephanie Butnick, with Joshua Molina and Liel Leibovitz. We're produced and edited by Josh Cross, Robert Scaramuccia, Quinn Waller, and Ellie Blyer. Our team includes Tanya Singer, Courtney Hazlett, Jerome Rusquet, with help from Sam Hacker and Jordana LaRosa. A major thank you to producer Josh Cross for getting our first beautifully Jewish segment out into the world and to Tanya Singer for creating this series with me. Thanks to Gabe Goldstein for showing me around Yeshiva University Museum's new exhibit, The Golden Path, and to artist Heather Stoltz, whose website is sewingstories.com. And creative mavens Jenny Rosbrook, Abby Glassenberg, and Vicki Katzman. Get your unorthodox merch at tabletstudios.com. Our episode art is by Esther Werdiger. Our logo and merch is designed by Jenny Rosbrook. Our theme music is by Golem. And our news and mailbox themes are by Steve Barton. Send us email at unorthodox at tabletmag.com or leave a message on our listener line, 914-570-4869. Wishing you a very, very happy 5784. Until next week, shalom, friends. Josh, can you record yourself blowing it and we'll play it for the outro?